Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and sports nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Phil Stevens. I run Strength Guild. I'm a strength coach. I'm also a powerlifter and Highland Games athlete. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm owner of Extreme Human Performance, creator of the Flex Diet Cert, and still here in Hood River, Oregon, where I rode almost 50 miles on my kiteboard yesterday. Wow. So I'm a little sore. Well, I hope that soreness goes away. This is Sarah Campbell. I am an associate professor of kinesiology and health at Rutgers University. And my area of expertise is the gut microbiota and how it's influenced by diet and exercise. Awesome. Hey. All hey. Right. Yep. <clears throat> we are going to cover what just one little tidbit of news today, everybody, because we want to get to uh, Dr. Campbell's origin story. And then the topic of the day, which, as you might guess, is gut health, right, and the, the microbiome and what it might do for strength athletes and that sort of thing. Uh, but let's get to this little tidbit of news here. Uh, it's very thematic. Strength and Muscle Sport News. This is by Celeste Alexander and colleagues. It's in the new edition, uh, the new issue of Advances in Nutrition. Um, it's just entitled Perspective, Physiologic Importance of Short-Chain Fatty Acids from Non-Digestible Carbohydrate Fermentation. So that's a bit of a mouthful, but essentially it sets the stage by saying that in recent years, it's become increasingly obvious that dietary fiber or non-digestible carbohydrate consumption is critical for maintaining health, right, and affecting your metabolism, uh, so much so that in 2016, the FDA actually took it upon themselves to define, or at least define a little bit better, what fiber is. Uh, and so just to kind of uh, explain a little bit of this, uh, the paper also goes on to talk about how it's essentially the, the breakdown or the partial breakdown of these fibers, right, by your gut microbiota and some of the products of that that then can have farther reaching effects on your everything, everything from mood to metabolism, et cetera, um, including these uh, short chain fatty acids. And again, we're going to get educated by uh, Dr. Campbell on this in just a little bit. But it basically says in this review, we discussed the physiologic importance of non-digestible carb fermentation uh, by examining the evidence. And again, they're really focusing on maybe um, more emphasis on the endpoint of these short-chain fatty acids as something that really needs to be uh, looked at closely. Uh, in the intro to the paper here, just as I crack this open, uh, it talks about how the FDA uh, actually listed 15 isolated and synthetic non-digestible carbohydrates that could have beneficial physiologic effects. Uh, so here are some that you may be familiar with. Cellulose, pectin, right? So think like fruit pectin, um, guar gum, locust bean gum. You might see that as a thickener in foods like ice cream, for example. Um, Beta-glucan, psyllium husk, inulin, uh, which I believe is often derived from chicory root. But corn, <laughs> corn fiber, uh, resistant starch, uh, corn fiber, I think that's what's in Quest bars, if I remember right. Um, yeah, they used it for a while. I don't know if they changed it or not, but yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it says the 2015 to 2020 dietary guidelines for Americans recommend an intake of fiber of 14 grams per thousand calories each day. Uh, but of course, the majority of Americans fall far below this goal. In fact, it's, it's almost comical. Every year, right, I do a little diet recall with students it's one of the projects that they do in class and it's usually underclassmen and they're eating like nine grams of fiber i mean it's almost like how do you even get it that low you know because of their reliance on sort of um processed foods and things like that it's it's often very low anyway most americans are of course below the fiber recommendations 
It says the FDA accepted physiologic health benefits from fiber are the following. Uh, attenuation of blood glucose and insulin, right? So we don't have those blood sugar spikes, as, as it were. Uh, lower fasting cholesterol. Increased uh, mineral absorption. And I find this interesting because that's sort of loaded because I think that depends on the type of fiber. Uh, like phytates, for example, and whole grains, they can interfere with certain minerals. Uh, but in any case... Um, what else do we have here? Reduced energy intake, right? Because they're essentially calorie-free in a sense, right? They're non-digestible, these fibers. Uh, and then production of uh, fermentative end products and changes in the GI microbiota. But those, this paper says, are not currently considered physiologic endpoints for fiber. They sort of jump to some of the, you know, the outcomes in a sense. So I think this paper is calling for a closer look uh, at things like the the short chain fatty acids and and what comes out, uh, you know, at the end of consuming these kinds of fibers. So just to kind of set the stage a little bit, different kinds of fibers, different kinds of benefits, uh, and I think that's going to interest a lot of athletes as far as their body composition, uh, maybe performance, and all that sort of thing. Um, I don't know, uh, Doctor Campbell, any comments on that? Um, uh, well, I, I think it's it's great. It, it coincides with some, you know, things that I was thinking about prior to this discussion in terms of you know things to recommend for health and it, it and um, how we wanted to define uh, the difference between a pre and a probiotic. And it seems that most of those recommendations for the FDA come in the form of the prebiotic. So what you're going to feed your microbiota as opposed to a probiotic, which is actual, you know, microbes that you're intaking. So I think it's it's great because um, while probiotics haven't been found to be, say, detrimental to health, I'm definitely a fan of the prebiotics. So using food to feed those microbes and, and give them the things they need in terms of those carbohydrates, enhancing the production of those short chain fatty acids are, are typically what is associated with all of those health benefits. And I think is, is of interest to the athlete who really wants to stay healthy because if you stay healthy, you can, you know, train. And if you train, you can enhance your performance. And so I think that that's a big positive message that's coming from that paper, not just from a health perspective, but potentially for, um, say, chronic diseases, but a health perspective for the general population. Right. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, that was, I looked at the full manuscript. It is a sweeping review, right? So I'm trying to cherry pick a few things and still make sense out of it and that people might actually be interested in because there's a lot of mechanistic things, of course, in that paper, but. Right. Okay. Um, well, let's, uh, let's switch gears a little bit though. And let's just talk about you. Um, we always like to do the origin story segment here. So, uh, let's just share with listeners, how you got into exercise physiology and eventually, I mean, studying poo, <laughs> right? right? I mean, yeah. that's something that's, it's a little bit less unusual, I think, than it used to be, but it still sounds a little unusual. But uh, yeah, let's start with either academically or athletically. How did, how did you become who you are? Right. Well, thanks for asking. And um, I mean, I started playing soccer when I was five. And so I got really excited about that sport. I was involved in other sports as well. I gave a try to softball. I did swimming. But really when it came time to finish up middle school and go into high school, I really got into just focusing on soccer as my primary sport and, and you know, played that pretty much year round. And so when it came time to look at colleges, I, I knew that I wanted to go play soccer in college. So I, I you know, you talk to, to coaches, you get recruited. And um, one of the biggest messages that I remember getting was, gosh forbid, you have a career ending injury, what type of university would you want to go to that had a great academic program and was a place you really enjoyed being. Mm -hmm. And so um, in looking at all of the universities, I chose Bloomsburg University of Pennsylvania. It was just a beautiful campus. It still is. I got to go back there last year. The soccer program was outstanding. We were Division Two, but we were, my senior year, top five in the country. 
We went to nationals three out of the four years I was there. We're conference champions. And I actually went initially for physical therapy, like probably most of you are familiar with. Many of the students who come through our exercise science programs are usually interested in physical therapy. Um, After some not-so-fun chemistry classes initially, I was like, oh, I'm not sure if more chemistry is, is in my future and I started looking at majors and, and I just, someone was like, well, there's a major called exercise science. And I was like, wow, science, you know, we're all science nerds, admittedly. And I was like, a science in studying exercise. So as an athlete, it really doesn't get any better than hearing that there's a major about how exercise or what exercise does to your body. So I'm pretty much that day, I went to the registrar and changed my major. And, you know, in some ways, the rest became history. I found a phenomenal uh, female mentor, Dr. Linda Lamira, my junior year. And so that was a great decision. And she, you know, helped me get an internship at the U.S. Olympic Training Center up in Lake Placid, New York, where I primarily worked with the women's ice hockey team. Um, and for the the longest time, I had some interest in that, but I also had interest in looking at heart disease. I had a grandmother who passed away really young from heart disease. And that became kind of my um, stepping stone to start looking into PhD programs where they had strong, you know, cardiovascular programs. Ended up going to work with Dr. Bob Moffitt down at Florida State University um, and looked at cholesterol metabolism and how exercise affects the cholesterol profile. So specifically, total cholesterol, HDLs and their subfractions, LDL, the small LDL, lipoprotein little a, and um, continued with that through my postdoctoral fellowship, which was also at Florida State under the direction of Dr. Baram Arjmandi. Um, But it was nutritionally focused. So we looked at flaxseed and how it might reverse atherosclerotic lesions in an animal model Hmm. of ovariectomy. And so um, from there, I got lots of training in um, heart disease, inflammation, uh, lumens of vessels. And so when I applied to come work at Rutgers, because I'm a Jersey girl at heart, my, my family's back here, um, I, I came with the interest of continuing potentially to look at some of that inflammation. And through kind of like a very profound conversation I had with a colleague, it's like, you know, what can you contribute as a scientist? And so I spoke to, you know, another colleague of mine who I met during my postdoc and, you know, just asked about the bioavailability of antioxidants in obesity. And I said, I'm interested in inflammation. Inflammation is linked to obesity. And so, you know, antioxidants is one way to help reduce potentially inflammatory load. So has anyone ever looked at bioavailability of antioxidants and obesity and and he was like I don't think so start doing some searches and and really that's where everything changed because I started looking at bioavailability nutrients gut obesity and that's when I started seeing some of the first papers on nutrition obesity and gut microbiome and so I started reading some of those and got very excited Um, And the next search I performed was exercise and microbiome, and it said zero. So that was my calling. Wow. And so from there, I started designing some of the first animal studies that that we um, were conducting at the time because we wanted to look a little bit more at mechanism. We take actually intestinal sections, which is a little bit more difficult to do in humans. I mean, if you know anybody who's willing to give me a section of their gut, great. But I don't usually think that that's something we can do. Not okay. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I've started to work with some physicians who can do biopsies and so forth. So that's going to be, you know, a way to start looking at some inflammatory markers in, in colon tissue, for example. But that's really, you know, it started all with, you know, being excited about exercise as a soccer player and then finding just some great mentors along the way who helped facilitate that love of science and really a search that ended in in a zero count at exercise and microbiome. And so from there, we just started asking lots of questions about how exercise might change the microbiota because we know that um, exercise changes metabolism and that the microbes are linked to metabolism. So I thought, 
okay, well, that might be an interesting place to start. And so that's that's really where it all began. And I, I'm, I'm sure that sounds a little crazy, but that's that's really that how it it all started. And now, you know, you talk about poo. I mean, the kids call us the poo crew or the, <laughs> the poo group. And, you know, right. we're kind of just known as, you know, the the you know, the people who investigate what happens to, you know, your fecal samples when you exercise, which I'm all good. I'm all good with that. Right. No, absolutely. I, I think it's it's interesting how people there's like multiple branches in the in a career path, you know, and you increasingly move more and more uh, in a direction until you're up to your elbows in poo. <laughs> you know? Right. Pretty much. Uh, Pretty much. <laughs> I, I used to make fun of a friend of mine, Steve. Uh, he works down at Abbott Labs in Columbus. And he was one of the first guys, I mean, gosh, in the early 90s, he was publishing some stuff on, because he was interested in lactose maldigestion, right? And so right. he was looking, he was taking uh, gas samples after having people wear rubber pants with valves and whatnot, you know, and I used right. to kind of, you know, laugh at him, like, how do you become a, a, a flatulence researcher, you know? Because like, right. it's not something that immediately, like, you don't just wake up one day and be like, that's me, I'm all about that. But like you said, it's it's this this seductive like this lure toward oh i'm interested in inflammation and oh man the, you know the gut microbiome plays a huge role in this and right and you know o- over the past couple of years on the podcast here we've talked about things like the biggest trends one of our biggest trends has been the gut microbiome you know and right. how individual bugs or or their metabolites or what have you uh what they do with the the foods that you consume, how they can affect performance or body comp or all these different things. And so that, that actually, that's what we're going to get to after, after the break. But uh, let me just dig into one thing you said about your career. You said you sure. work with, you said ice hockey. Yeah. The women's ice hockey team. Yep. I was, I got to train them at the, I got to meet a bunch of the teams up there, but specifically at the time they were getting ready. So this was in 2001. So they were getting ready to defend their gold medal in the 2002 Olympic games. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, what did you do with them? I mean, what was your role? Right. So as the exercise physiology intern, I guess you could say, so it was, it was my job to really, um, attend and uh, lead their training sessions, work with them on mainly cardiovascular fitness. Um, The strength and conditioning coach worked with their really that aspect, the strength training, but the cardiovascular fitness really kind of fell um, on my shoulders as I interacted with the, the PI at the training center at the time. So that's, I, you know, got to go watch them on ice and, um, we tested, believe it or not, we actually tested some air quality up there in Lake Placid because some of them had exercise-induced bronchospasm because of the cold weather. So we had to take that into consideration when you were training those athletes. So it was it was a pretty surreal and, and awesome experience working with the those, you know, I mean, they were the top players in the world. Right. You know, they ended up, I think in 2002, I think they did this, the, won the silver medal that year okay but 98 they did the gold in 2002 but it was just an awesome time meeting and working with those women sort of a cool addition to your portfolio right that you worked with a silver medal winning team you know yeah (laughs) you know for sure yeah uh part of the reason i asked what you did specifically is because you had brought up some of the nutrition stuff um and i i think our listeners realize but a lot of the the data a lot of the research that comes out in nutrition is actually done by exercise physiologists, especially the kind of nutrition that's interesting to our listenership, right? Right. Uh, it's not right. like dietitians are generally, right, uh, it's a very small minority that actually have doctorates and do a lot of research. And so they're focused on, uh, you know, the clinical side of things often, and you don't see quite as much data uh, compared to someone like exercise physiology. And I think that's why you see departments like we just renamed our department uh, exercise science and nutrition science, right? Because we're trying to emphasize that, hey, we do a lot of the nutrition side of things too. Um, but in, anyway, so I, I was just curious about how much you, uh, one versus the other you were doing before. And because obviously a lot of what you do now is, I would argue it's it's primarily nutritional, I mean, yes and no. I mean, we use, so, I mean, we always have our animals on an exercise regimen. 
and we a lot of times we we use the high fat diets to really manipulate inflammatory status mm -hmm. and to see if exercise can ameliorate some of the things that are induced by a high fat diet. So mm -hmm. we've used both the 45 and a 60% fat. So, you know, one really, you know, consistent thing we find not only in our studies but the literature is that exercise is a great way to um curtail body weight gain. Yeah. Right. So right. even those animals on a 60 percent fat diet, but if they exercise, their weight gain is not as um, high as their sedentary cohort. Right. And so that's a really and and, you know, the inflammatory, particularly the infla inflammatory status in the colon is really protected by exercise, even in the high fat diet, both in it seems that both in the 45 and our 60% high fats. So if they eat a higher fat diet, and they exercise, they can protect that colon somewhat from an inflammatory insult. Right? Yeah, one of, the, one of the reasons you see a lot of exercise physiologists do nutrition research is because these are two manipulations, these are two kinds of interventions that they're kind of two sides of the same coin, like if the coin is inflammation, right, right, high fat, yep. you know, to make it quote unquote worse and then oh what does exercise do to that it kind of goes beyond just population specificity and saying oh athletes have a less inflammation you know over time or whatnot but yeah you it's just it, it, these things right. affect your dependent variables right, right. whatever they might right. be Oh. And I would agree with your comment that over time, because, I mean, inflammation and, you know, production of, say, reactive oxygen species is actually something required for the body to adapt to that exercise. So, you know, I think so many people think inflammation and they automatically think it's evil, it's bad. But there is always the, you know, the flip side to that where it then produces a response that your body then learns to tolerate and, and deal with some of that. And obviously, it's different with exercise than it is, say, with a prolonged exposure to a high fat diet, as as research has shown. But it, you know, it's that interesting coin that you're talking about, um, you know, on, on the heads and the tail side of what can be good to create a um, an adaptation to prevent an inflammatory insult versus what's going to perpetuate that insult. There's no doubt, and I don't want to go on a tangent, but I think it's one of the things that confuses the hell out of a bunch of lifters and athletes is, like, should I take antioxidants? Are they going right. to blunt? You know, we've talked about research blurbs over the years about how uh, right. too much antioxidant activity leads to reduced adaptations to exercise, you know. Right. Uh, as a, but right. like you said, then there are other things, like whether it's your bowel or the intima of your arteries or whatever, then inflammation is something you also want to control. So that the antioxidant and inflammation literature can be such a, a minefield, I think. Right. Uh, but Right. Okay. Um, we're going to go to break, everybody. And when we come back, um, Dr. Campbell's going to educate us on just a whole series of questions about, uh, and practical things, about uh, the gut, uh, how to feed it specifically, what you might benefit uh, from by doing so and that sort of thing. So we'll be back in just a moment. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit uh, royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks.
Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, folks, we're back. It's Phil and Mike and Lonnie, and we have Dr. Sarah Campbell with us. And we're going to learn about uh, the gut, uh, how to feed it, what it might do for lifters, right, and exercisers. Uh, I think we really need to start with some definitions. We've already touched on a few of these between the news blurb and and what Sarah was saying earlier. Uh, But let's do this in a quick fire kind of way. Um, Because I know that scientists are always full of caveats, right? Like, well, only in this situation, only this. And so let's do this as quickly as we can so we can get to the, you know, the the gold nuggets, if you will. Sure. Um, Let's just start with microbiome. When you say microbiome, what do you mean? Right. So microbiome and there's also microbiota. So we, you know, they're a lot of times used interchangeably, but microbiome is really the collection of like the genomes. So like the the DNA, the genetic potential of the microorganisms within an environment. So we have microbiomes not only for the gut, but for the lungs. There's vaginal microbiomes. So anything, nasal microbiomes, oral microbiome. Mm -hmm. So lots of those kind of like um, mucus membranous type of surfaces has a unique kind of genetic potential within that environment. Whereas the microbiota is simply the organisms that are in that environment. Nuance, right? Right, it is. But I I think it's important to note that I mean, the way that you identify all those bugs is you don't count them individually. You kind of get an idea of what kind of genetic material is there, and that's yes. the fingerprint, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. So you get um, – so the idea of the sequencing platforms that you use, depending on which one you use, it gives you a specific number of base pairs. That base pair is then matched up against known um, micro, microbial sequences in a NCBI, what we call BLAST. And so it, it becomes quite um, time-consuming so that right. then you can report what those are. Right. Gotcha. Yeah, in fact, in the past, we even talked about, there was an interesting um, news release a couple of years ago on the beard microbiota, right? And it, literally the bugs in, in your beard, and they were kind of emphasizing, because a lot right. of our lifters are, <laughs> this is so right. stereotypical, but I mean, we have a lot of women that listen too, but we have a lot of like bearded power lifter guys. And it's interesting to note that it might help you resist certain infections or, you know, they're right. really, you know, sort of working with you there. Right. Um, the skin has a very... Um, interesting microbiome that I think is really starting to come to the surface. And there are lots of calls, you know, for proposals that are looking at that skin microbiome and exactly what you're just talking about, how that might promote, say, resistance to some of the more pathogenic bacteria to kind of, again, the idea is really with all of these microbiomes is how to optimize it so that that environment is more healthy than it is unhealthy. Right. And I'll be honest, when I've tried to read some of this literature, it gets so complex with the different populations and so many different kinds uh, that unless you're really willing to sit down and throw a lot of time into this, it can really become difficult to try to extract practical gold nuggets about these sorts of things. But I think one of those, Mike, you brought up in the past, which was about, and I'm sure that Sarah will agree with this, but about the difference in pre versus probiotics and how that might work. Uh, it, in other words, if you take probiotics, you don't just rewrite your 
you know, your gut microbiome, right? Or you don't just completely change these bugs. But Sarah, I think it was also you that mentioned you have these sort of, um, I forget the word you use, but these core groups that then talk with the other satellite populations. Right, right. right. So, yeah, one of my colleagues here at Rutgers, we have a pretty good set of microbiome uh, researchers, Li Ping Zhao, came up with the idea of what he called a genome interaction group. And essentially that they are kind of clusters of, of bugs that we believe functionally work similar. So, you know, a lot of those probiotic type bugs are obviously clustered together, which is why probiotics are such a big thing, which I know we'll touch on in, very briefly. But that that's just not the only group that's out there, that there are several other groups and each having important functions, which aren't all elucidated yet. But if you tend to pull, say, one of those groups in a specific direction, it's going to interact or interfere with how the other groups interact with one another. So that's the only reason, you know, or not the only reason, but one of the major reasons that, you know, I'm a bigger proponent of a, a prebiotic so eating a food that feeds those microbes as opposed to a probiotic, which are specific microbes, a lot of which are going to be those bifidobacterium and lactobacillus, mm -hmm. which are part of one interaction group. Okay. And so it's almost like you're ignoring the other ones. No, right, right. Now, Mike, I know that you actually, in a practical way, I mean, you bring science to the table for certain clients and whatnot, and you'll try to explain i think in the past you've said something about like if you take a probiotic you're sort of layering on top right of the person's salient uh microbiota kind of thing uh, how do you do that like literally really practical uh brands doses that sort of thing like what do you normally consider if someone's interested in a pre or probiotic yeah usually with that like i got from my buddy michael ruscio who's been on here before too is Kind of, I usually just use three categories. You know, the main one being kind of the the lacto kind of bacillus category, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this too, Doctor Campbell. And then um, other kind of what's called an outcrowder, so like a Saccharomyces boulardii, which is I think more of a yeast type spectrum. The truck drives by, um, and then there's some other like soil based probiotics, um, which are probably a little bit newer, although they've been around for for a while. Um, and I, you know, in all honesty, I just kind of guess. <laughs> okay. You know, I mean, just based on experience of what this, you know, tends to work better. And a lot of it, you know, comes down to logistics. You know, some of the real high dose, you know, VSL ones, things like that have to be refrigerated. So if you have an athlete that's traveling a lot, I mean, they can be out of the refrigerator for a while, but, you know, the potency kind of drops. So sometimes it's just, practicality i may just use the soil-based probiotic to start and see if it helps because i can use a lower dose and they don't have to be refrigerated things of that nature i usually find those tend to be just tolerated pretty well like they don't tend to mess up digestion things of that nature but yeah any input you have on that i'd be more than willing to to hear it because you're you're not really dealing with the frank pathology you're dealing with a little bit of you know, Ma, this is kind of bugging me. Maybe this is what it is. So it's you're definitely in that gray area ish. Good point. Yeah. Right. right. And so I think what you what you said is is not only just interesting, but a little bit true when you said I just kind of guess because I would I would almost argue if even out of the four of us and I study the microbiome, I couldn't tell you I have not actually done a sample of myself. Could any of you tell me what your microbiome looked like? Not at all. Yeah. And that was one of my questions, too, about at some point just the at-home testing for the microbiome, which I, the little bit I know is like, yeah, you might as well keep guessing. <laughs> right. Well, you know, they're, I think they're getting better with yeah. some of that. I think that some of the collection kits have a, a longer shelf life. Um it all depends on, you know, I, I think the the Human Microbiome Project is still really big, you know, place for kind of accepting some of those samples. I actually think a lot of the companies who provide the kits for a fee will actually provide you with a with a, a, a readout, your bioinformatics of what your microbiome uh, looks like. And so, you know, the, the big things to consider from a scientific point of view is, 
um, which platform do they use to analyze? So we were talking, you know, Lonnie, you were talking earlier about how starting to read some of that information can get quite cumbersome and it, and it can, but it's all about at which level of taxonomy do they explain things? So taxonomy being like kingdom all the way down to species and strain. And many of the platforms can only get to usually family or genus. And then, um, they have to use some sort of um, algorithm, for lack of a better word, to determine some of those species and or strains. So the longer the read, a.k.a. more base pairs that you can establish with your technology, the more specific you can get it looking at those species and strains. And so I think that that's one interesting thing when we think about uh, probiotics is that you know, some of the technologies that are out there right now don't necessarily get down to that nitty gritty level that might be able to tell you which ones are the actual best, you know, probiotics to to actually take. Um, and there's also just the, the limitation of um, the mechanisms by which the microbes work. And I think that that's really what becomes important. I think people throw around terms like, oh, we need to enhance microbial diversity. So the more different types of microbes you have, the better or the healthier you'll be. Mm-hmm. And in, in some ways, you know, the literature supports that, you know, a more diverse microbiome, you know, might be associated with better health. But we don't know how those microbes function. And so the function of those microbes really are what gonna, is, is what going to dictate uh, what metabolites they produce. Okay, so that was, that's, you know, one of the things that you wanted me to answer, right? right. What are these metabolites and what are these short chain fatty acids, mm-hmm. right? And so is that a, is that a right if I kind of get into No, right. That? Yeah, I was just going to say if we could talk about terms like fermentation, short chain right. fatty acids, the right. whole deal, right? Which is I think where you're headed. Right. So yeah, so um so, you know, some of the questions were, you know, what's a non-digestible carb? What's a fermentable carb? Short-chain fatty acids. I mean, those a lot of those terms are used so interchangeably. I mean, in nutrition world, you can talk about, you know, a resistant starch or a soluble fiber versus an insoluble fiber, right? I think those are the types of things that you're really talking about. So, you know, soluble fiber resistant starch is basically something that's resistant to digestion in the small intestine. It's going to really stay relatively intact until it gets down to the colon where it, you know, is acted upon by the microbes. And this is that fermentation process. And so those complex carbohydrates then become essentially short chain fatty acids. And the three primary short chain fatty acids that we hear most about are acetate, propionate, and butyrate. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the the slight nuance and differences is an insoluble fiber, you know, which is really what we think about that helps to promote um, uh, BMs, right? So somebody who's constipated, you know, we want to, you tend to prescribe or um, promote them uh, taking in insoluble fibers. Soluble fibers are many of the things, Lonnie, that you spoke about at the beginning in terms of recommendations from the FDA. Mm-hmm. And so those are those resistant starches. And, and these carbohydrates, again, are, are critical to promoting a healthy microbiota. Um, can you label as good or bad, beneficial or not, any of those short-chain fatty acids? Like, does someone want more acetate in their bloodstream, or is that generally deleterious? Or propionate or butyrate? Are some of these better to have more in your system than others? I know this is grossly simplifying stuff, but... No, you can put some some judgments on them. Okay. Like the overwhelming consensus with the exercise literature is that it does absolutely promote butyrate production, and that's good. Okay. Butyrate as a short chain fatty acid promotes col- colonocyte, so a colon uh, cell health. It promotes how they develop, how they differentiate, how they function. Um, as a healthy cell within that colon to reduce the amount of potentially inflammatory insult that that uh, colon might um, experience. Mm-hmm. So in, in some ways, that's, you know, that's excellent. So it's not an oversimplified question at all. I mean, okay. exercise is known to do that. And, okay. 
exercise is a known preventative for things like colon cancers and inflammation and recommended for inflammatory bowel disease patients and so forth. So I think that that's an, an excellent question and, and, and something that the literature has just, you know, recently over the last couple of years, I'd say since 2016, we published that paper in PLOS in the animal model showing butyrate producing microbes were higher when animals are exposed to exercise. And it's been, you know, validated over the last couple of years in additional animal studies and in human studies as well. Okay. Part of the reason that I ask is because about a year ago, we talked about a paper that was suggesting that acetate production and then uh, presumably blood concentrations affected your brain in such a way that it, it yeah. caused like fogginess and fatigue. Um, right. And so to me, that sounds a like big, a negative. <laughs> right. Right. So there in, on the, and on the health side, there's an animal study where they actually directly infused acetate into the brain and it increased what they call hyperphagia. It basically made them eat a lot more and induced type two diabetes. Um, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily always the case, right? I think that that's kind of the the complicated part to the question you're asking. Mm -hmm. Butyrate exercise relationship seems to be pretty well established. Um, the propionate is tends to also be one of the more favorable short chain fatty acids in terms of uh, health promoting. Acetate tends to be um, really dependent upon uh, really the, the intervention. In the one case we saw acetate, you know, in, induced type 2 diabetes. And another case, a paper by my one colleague who I was just saying in 2018 showed that acetate as a result of his diet, which was high in prebiotic carbohydrates, um, was consistently higher in some of the healthier patients. So I think it's, this is where function becomes really important, right? Because it could be the function of a pathogenic bug producing acetate has a deleterious effect where the production of acetate, say from a more um, a more beneficial bacteria will then downstream affect metabolism in a healthier way. Right. So I think that that's why that whole, we can't get so hung up sometimes on diversity without addressing the fact that those microbes function in specific ways um, becomes critically important to that conversation. Right. Yeah. I, I guess that's why I'm tiptoeing because being largely ignorant of this area, right, um, aside from what you're saying is the on the dietetic side of it, which is more simplified, um, yeah, about judging these things as good or bad, these specific, you know, short chain fats and whatnot, but. I mean, I feel ignorant too most of the time. There's a lot of information out there, <laughs> there yeah. on the micro, the microbiota, the microbiome. It is a rapidly expanding topic. And to say that I or anyone could keep up with the amount of information that comes out is is a little naive. I mean, I would never, you know, claim to do that. I mean, I try and stay in my wheelhouse as, as best I can and, and think about things. But, you know, knowledge is, I mean, th those papers are just abundant and everywhere. Right. Yeah. It's easy to get bogged down in mechanistic stuff. You know, Mike and I will talk about that sometimes, not knowing yeah. that is there an actual clinical outcome to be had, <laughs> you know? Right. Kind of um, right. Okay. So let's, let's try to cut to the chase the best we can here. Sure. So from this perspective of colonic microbiota, what yep. kind of foods would you suggest are most beneficial? I mean, whether it's body composition or performance, and trying to keep in mind, right, we have a lot of, well, lifters that listen to this show, and they're going to be probably more interested in strength than they are cardiovascular stuff, but right. foods, doses, you know, any kind of recommendations that you feel like you could at least speculate on? Sure. So obviously one of the big things that is consistently true with a healthy microbiota that's um, uh anti-inflammatory are going to be those prebiotic type of foods that, like I said, you were uh, reading off and recommending earlier in terms of the FDA. Um, so those types of things like oats and beans and fruits and barley and psyllium, those are going to be those uh, those healthy 
um, promoting carbohydrates. You know, you hate to be, you know, here's me being, you know, oversimplified, but the kind of like good versus bad carbohydrate, right? Mm-hmm. So the good carbohydrate, those those starches versus the bad carbohydrate, the ones that produce, a, you know, a, a rapid rise in that glucose and, and insulin. You want that more sustained response that actually... In, in terms of the gut helps promote a healthy we're gonna we're gonna go there mucus layer that you know continuously feeds those microbes and protects that colon from inflammation mm-hmm. and so in terms of carbohydrates that's that's really you know the things to to look out for um, dosing is hard I would say just because it's a little individualized right it depends on what phase you are, say, in your training. If you're, say, a bodybuilder and closer to show, my guess is you're trying to cut out as many carbs as as possible, right? And so I would argue some of the carbs that you need to get are some of those starchier type of carbs to at least try and, and help not to break down that barrier in the gut. Or, you know, the the microbiota is pretty resilient. If it's changed temporarily, it will um, because of say a diet or a, a cut or something like that, it will actually, once you kind of go off of that, um, resume its normal, um, function and, um, diversity to what it was when it was before, right? So your microbiome is settled, believe it or not, when you're young around two or three and it takes about, so in terms of, um, timing, it takes a couple of weeks to actually really kind of functionally change the composition of the microbiota. It's suggested um, about 28 days, so four weeks. There you go. Okay. And so, yep. And so that doesn't necessarily um, mean that physiologically you won't start seeing things, all right? The microbiota will start to, to shift. Well, I should say that. So the microbiota will start to shift, and then you will start to see physiological changes. So the microbiota actually changes before the physiological outcome. So that's a really interesting thing that the links the microbiome composition to the health and the function of your of the host. Okay. Now, right? let me ask you something and this is going to this is asking you to speculate because I sincerely doubt there are studies on this, but Sure. It's when you when you mentioned like um bodybuilder dieting for a competition that kind of thing. Uh, and when you talk about the 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 particular microbiota and how they affect hunger or, you know, and how acetate might worsen that hyperphagia and that, you know, excessive eating. If someone was about to start a pretty aggressive stepwise diet, let's say a 20 week diet where they're pulling out carbohydrates more and more over this period or what have you, would it behoove them for, let's say a month to eat a lot of these whole foods, these higher fiber foods, would they have more of a chance not to fall off the wagon? That's a great question. Something we should design as a study. I'm just saying. Okay. Um, would it would it prevent the the change? It's it's possible. It's possible that if they built up a particular beneficial microbiota because they really kind of uh, promoted those good bugs, mm-hmm. it's possible that it might take longer to change once you go through that kind of um, total switch right before, say, your show. Um, but that's totally speculative, right. as you mentioned. I don't. There's definitely no data out there um, to, to say that. Right. But it's possible that I could see those microbes being a little bit more, um, uh, how do we say, stable for lack of a better word, and kind of holding true to those genome groups that kind of interact then with the other ones. Right. Okay. Uh, Part of the reason I I ask that is because at least me personally, and maybe listeners, those of you who have done bodybuilding diets in the past, you could chime in on this, but mid-diet, so I would usually, when I was competing, I would do like a 20 or a 24-week diet. It it was sort of progressive, but mid-diet, I always felt like, meh, I'm just... I'm not that hungry. Like, you know, I don't want to go wipe out a bag of greasy chips right now. You know, I don't want to go eat uh, three or four candy bars. Like, I kind of got – you get in this – Mike Menser, right, a famous pro bodybuilder from the golden era, he used to call it metabolic momentum. And I think it's interesting that the gut microbiome 
may actually be explaining some of that. Maybe there is something to his concept, right? Which was really right. just opinion on his on his part. You know, we're talking about decades ago, uh, this idea of metabolic momentum and how you kind of just get in the state right. where you know it's not that hard to maintain it. You know, right. maybe it's not just psychological. Maybe it's it's that gut influence on on your brain. Right. And there's an enormous gut influence on your brain. I mean, the gut and the brain are connected via the vagus. So, you know, there's a reason they say, oh, you know, I have a gut feeling or go with your gut. And, you know, it's very interesting that these things have developed given now all that we know about that, you know, brain gut axis and the, the that type of communication that goes on. So, you know, there's a real, you know, there's a real sound way you can kind of talk through that to to make it, you know, almost sound sensible. Right. Okay. Now we're running out of time. So let me wind this down a little bit with a question that I asked you when we were in Vegas, which is what's the, what's the effectiveness of this approach that you're so fascinated with, right? What's its contribution compared to something like hormones or drugs or the other kinds of things that come into gym conversations with powerlifters and bodybuilders? What's the, what's the potency of what you're talking about here when it comes to body comp or performance. Right. So what's, what's really interesting is, is since, since, you know, we had a chance to talk in, in Las Vegas, I've um, initiated a collaboration with a really cool microbiologist in, in Iowa. And he actually studies the production of a lot of those things that you're kind of mentioning, you know, dopamine, the neurotransmitters, like a neuroendocrine um, metabolic profile. And so I think that that's where that's, headed to. So what types of of these bugs can say enhance dopamine production or epinephrine or norepinephrine production that's linked to activating fat metabolism and mm-hmm. happy feelings in the brain. And so what what bugs really do that, produce a lot of those neurotransmitters. And so we, you know, have started taking a special media that that my collaborators developed and incubating fecal samples with it to to find out which some of those bugs might be. And that might be an interesting direction in terms of a probiotic. So incorporating some of those bugs that enhance production of some of those neurotransmitters, which might be linked to, say, norepinephrine to facilitate lipolysis, right? Mm-hmm. Or dopamine to kind of give you um, enhanced feelings of mental health and mental well-being. And so I think that that's... Um, kind of the best answer that I have for that question, but a really cool area that that people should really be on the lookout to see um, what those microbes might be producing and how they then get incorporated into some of those probiotic potentially formulations. Okay, right. No, so in a sense, what I'm taking from that is it might essentially be a false distinction to say gut microbiome versus hormones because maybe their influence on hormones, and I mean, even yes. beyond neurotransmitters, uh, GLP-1 and insulin and ghrelin, right. I mean, you can you know, go down the list, maybe they're part of the same puzzle, right? In, in, that, in fact, the, the bugs are altering concentrations of these things right? You know, and that right. sort of thing, so. yeah. So it's possible, right, that, you know, finding ways to enhance your body's natural way to produce them rather than a synthetic way might be just healthier, for lack of a better word, Mm -hmm. you know, so just using your, your, you know, your body to facilitate that production. And so, I mean, there's at least 12 to 15 percent of the metabolites or the that are circulating in the blood that are derived from your microbes. Oh, wow. That's juicy. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. And so, and so, just to so just to quickly get back because I know you asked me something earlier, and I actually did find it. So in 2014, there was a study done on rugby players, right? And so rugby would, in my mind, be you know closer to some of the potentially like bodybuilding, uh, weightlifting type athletes, right? Strength and power power. oriented. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, I had a chance to look at the the diet intake of those participants. And so um, in terms of proteins, in in terms of grams per kilogram body weight, they were about 2.36 or 2.4 grams per kilogram and got up around, you know, 39 grams of fiber. And so I think that 
you know, with the higher protein, they were still able to balance some of that fiber. And this was one of the first human studies that came out to show that those athletes had, you know, better microbes, um, better health related outcomes. And, you know, it's, it's going to be a balance of ensuring that you get enough protein to enhance, you know, the muscle building that you want as a, a strength athlete, but keeping that fiber so that you can have the microbiome that you hope that will be beneficial. Mm-hmm. It's funny to, to go back and look at traditional bodybuilding type diets. And, you know, it's often like a chicken breast or two on a plate, but then half your plate is broccoli or green beans or something that's going to be fibrous in a sense. Right. You know, or, right. or a yam, you know, um, right. for the start source and that sort of thing. And it's, it's almost like validating a little bit, I guess, it, in a sense. Yeah. And so that's, you know, so that's a that's a great thing in terms of not only just meeting your training needs, but also, you know, maintaining gut health, which is, you know, imp- important in more they, ways than one. Oh, it is. And, you know, Mike brought something up earlier that I think as we as we sort of close here is that paper that I was just looking at, that review paper about focusing on the production of short chain fatty acids and that sort of thing. And what are the end uh, products and the outcomes of of changing your microbiota and all that it, it actually critiqued that a lot of the research that the FDA has leaned on over the years is in healthy populations and it's not in people that are in a, a chronically inflamed state like you're talking about obesity or cardiovascular disease or you know and, and some of that kind of stuff uh, population specificity that's a thing and right. you know we have to think about that if we're if we're basing so much of it only on healthy people maybe we need different fiber recommendations based on disease type you know like a type 2 diabetic should be eating these you know versus right. a healthy person kind of thing right I mean, that's where initially my search started was, you know, with, you know, bioavailability in obesity, you know, if to combat that inflammatory status, is there a greater need for antioxidant rich foods? Yep. I have a lot of other questions, too, that I won't bore you uh, or listeners with. Uh, Like I did my dissertation actually on different fatty acids and their effect on systemic inflammation. And um, so when you talk about high fat diets and that sort of thing, the first thing that comes to mind is if you're using that as a tool to inflame rodents, then I would think that those are mostly omega-6 fatty acids or, you know, saturated fats and omega-6. Like there's probably not a lot of omega-3s in that little blend in the rat chow or whatever. Right. You know. Right. So. Right. So, yeah, that's true. That's true. It does depend on the type of fat. I mean, we know that the Mediterranean diet, which is one of the ones now promoted, right, by the dietary guidelines, is higher in the mono and polyunsaturated fats. And the microbiome literature suggests that they have a a healthy microbiome. So it is, you know, the type of fat does definitely play a role in that. Right on. Okay. Well, I know that's a lot. So uh, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. For thank doing you for having me. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it. It's always fun talking about poop first thing in the morning. It is. Well, you know, li- I think our listeners know. I mean, Mike and I will go off. I mean, you, you ask uh, a professor to talk about her or his interest and look out. Cause, you know, there's going to be lots of chatting going on. Right. Hopefully it was all good chatting. I think it was. Oh, I think it was. very good. All right. Well, I know Phil had to jet, so everyone, we will see you next week. Thank you. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our halls of iron store and choose based on your goal if you need something to learn or read or something nutritional you can look in my store uh, Lonnie's store if you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition then take a look at Phil's hall of iron and if you want something about motivation or daily training Fortress's hall has what you're looking for there are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. Uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, 
things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.